Folks, this is Jake Feinberg. Being a father, I know there is nothing more important than your child's health. And nobody is more dedicated to children's health in Southern Arizona than Dwayne Dyson. Dr. Dyson is Tucson's finest pediatrician and has devoted much of his professional career to improving the lives of children. Located at 4530 East Camp Fort Lowell, Dr. Dyson's resume speaks for itself. After doing his undergraduate work at Cal Berkeley, his schooling took him to Morehouse School of Medicine, where he mentored young adolescents about the need for pediatric physicians in Atlanta and worked extensively with infants at the Texas Children's Hospital. The special thing about Dr. Dyson is that while his in-house care is exceptional, he also prepares families about what to expect once they leave the office. Dr. Dyson provides comprehensive and honest analysis for all of his patients. Dr. Dyson and his family live and work in Tucson because he knows how vibrant and diverse the community is. He is committed to procuring a robust family health center that can instill trust and alleviate the concerns of parents. Like I said, his resume speaks for itself. For more information, check out DysonPediatrics.com. Folks, this is Jake Feinberg. One of the first things I wanted to do when I moved to Tucson was find authentic Chinese cuisine. After a tip from the Chinese Student Association, I headed over to Badar Chinese Restaurant. Well, it's been seven years, and I have never looked back. Located at 7321 East Broadway Boulevard, Badar has been a family-run operation since 1992. The award-winning chef produces succulent dishes from sizzling ginger chicken to salt and pepper shrimp. The thing that separates Badar from the rest is that the chef procures ancient oriental dishes with the exotic island flair of Taiwan. Most importantly, there are no gimmicks or razzle-dazzle at Badar. You won't find any flat-screen TVs or karaoke machines. Badar is a place to go enjoy good food and spend time with your family. It exudes peace and tranquility after a long week of work. So come down and check out Badar Chinese Restaurant. Hong Hao Chu, it's that good. If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Be a part of a new coalition with Jake Feinberg. The second half of your show starts right now. Folks, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. And it's an honor to have guitarist Al Gaff on the program. Al, welcome back. Thanks, Jake. So let's pick it up from there. Um, the band was so powerful that basically it was get out of the way and let you guys bulldoze your way through. How long were the sets and how late did you play? Uh, the, the job was a, was a four-hour job, and I think it was like nine to, to one or something like that. That's, that. that's what I think it was. And uh, it was five, five nights a week. Uh, and uh, so, so the, the group was extremely powerful, we, and we were... Uh, we were in this. The Playboy Club had several rooms, and the the group was in the first room as you, as you would walk in, and the group was so powerful that many times people would not even get to the showrooms. They would just hang in, you know, hang in the in this area that we were in because we were just so strong. Mm-hmm. And we were there for, uh, I think, about three years, uh, you know, with this uh, with 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 this setup. And Kai Winding used to play uh, with us every one every once in a while. He was the musical director there. And when he left, Sam Donahue became the musical director. Sam used to play with us every once in a while, and it was a, you know, uh, it, it was just it was a, f- a fun job to, uh, to to be at. And at at that time in my career, that that job was like uh, Tuesday through Saturday, and I was busy in the studios in the daytime, like from Monday through Friday. So I was making money in the, in days working and, and making money at nights, and I had no time to spend the money 
<laughs> the only real day I had off was a Sunday, and I was always so exhausted from, from working so much that I would just kind of cool it. And, and, and that's how I, I was able to get a good start in, in my life, just by, by working so much. You know, I had no time to spend any money that I, that I was making. What was so the, we, we stayed, we no, I, have after, a, I have a question, actually. The, did you, did you um, start writing a lot of songs at that time? Uh, no, I, I didn't. Who was I, writing for that band, though? I mean, was it, was you just playing standards? You, you make, like, was Larry writing originals, or? No, yeah, every once in a while, somebody would, yeah. I mean, I wrote one or two things, Larry wrote one or two things, but the, the, that was, the main repertoire was um, American Standards. Okay, continue, yeah. Play choruses on them, yeah. And, it, you know, you, you, you give, we're giving the people a, a you know, not, uh, not continuous bebop, not continuous bossa nova. You know, we give them a blend of everything, and it, and it was high. It was high quality, and it was successful over there. And, and when that job came to an end, uh, we went to um, a small restaurant up uptown in uh, on Columbus and Ninety Second. It used to be called the Cellar, and they went from uh, twenty five dinners a night to one hundred twenty five dinners a night from you know with just the strength of the group alone. Wow! So it was, and it was a really exciting. Time in New York, there a lot of clubs had music, and you know we were part of it. What what were some of the other the other cl- big clubs back? Uh, the Apollo in Harlem. Yeah, I, yeah, that was that was not. That was not, more of a soul like, club. That's not a jazz. Uh, no. Club. Let me let me tell you something. In in the mid sixties, there was a uh, a club called Count Basie's. I think it was on one hundred twenty fifth and Lenox Avenue or something like that, and it was a uh, a guitar room. Uh, what I mean by that is they they would have guitar trios there, and it was usually like uh, Kenny Burrell and Jimmy Smith and uh, Bill English. That's a, that's a it was Kenny Burrell's trio, and Wes Montgomery would be up there with the same same setup: drums, organ, and guitar. Grant Green was there. George Benson used to work there. Eddie uh, Eddie Harris, a saxophonist, and so that I I used to listen to music up there when I whenever I had a chance, and I. Uh, that's where uh, Wes Montgomery started to really have an influence on my uh, guitar playing. I just I never saw anybody have so much fun on the instrument, and I wanted I wanted some of that. And he could really play. He had a fire that that a lot of guys don't have. He just had it was. So I he, I would go up there and sit the whole night and listen to that, and then I'd drive home, and then I'd practice three or four hours, and and, and I'd be you know be six o'clock in the morning, and I then I then I'd be wiped out. I have, I have a question, actually. Uh, I talked to uh, um, my first guest was uh, Pat Martino um, from Philadelphia. He he told me that when he went to Atlantic City to see the Jimmy Smith, Kenny Burrell trio, um, he went with Charles Erland, um, and the output was so uh, was so blazingly high, it was unbelievable uh-huh. that um, the next day Charles Erland st- uh, went from he stopped playing, he was playing the saxophone he stopped playing the saxophone and jumped on the started playing the organ and. At that, can you remember? I know we'll get back to West, but the, as far, can you talk a little bit uh, from a historical perspective about the sound that was being um, the output that came, that came from the Burrell Smith? Uh, it was a Dave Bailey on drum. Who was on drums? I th- you know, it was it was if, if it wasn't Dave, it was Bill English. Uh, Bill, Bill English, Bill used to yeah. Work a lot for them. Uh, was that an, was that the output was was really astounding? Was that, took it to a new level at that point? Yeah, it, it, you know, it was it was so high high quality and and. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, it definitely was. Yeah, there were there were definitely a couple of guys that could really take it up a notch, and Kenny was definitely one of them, and uh, Wes was Wes definitely was another one. They 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 just 
had so much to give and how much and so much to to, to share with with people that you know you, you as a musician uh, you need you needed to take that in and I, w- I was glad that I was able to, to see it and hear that. Were they uh, they were they were very compassionate people as well, or were they could they be very uh, could they really uh, hammer people too, or they just they were filled with like a lot of love? Uh, well, Wes was just full of love. He was just he was just an uh, unbelievable uh, great person. To be he was a better person than a player, which yeah. is amazing, really. Well, I'm I'm, I'm I, I don't know that deeply or not. But right, he, right. But you know, if if he saw you in the street. Uh, and you were carrying an instrument, he would say hello to you, as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, what are you doing with that instrument? You know what I mean? Yeah, what, what business do you have with that? He always yeah, treated everybody right. the same, yeah. Right. He, was, he, was, he, was, he had a lot of fire in his playing, and he had a lot of love in his, uh, in, inside him that he ch- was always sharing with people. And he, was, he was not a mentor of mine or anything like that, but he was uh, an inspiration that, uh, that I, you can't ever forget. That, that's what he gave me. So you were working steady gigs, the money was well, and then, um, well, I put it on for my daughter this morning as we were uh, on our way to the, uh, to, to, uh, the camp, her camp, and, uh, you know, I threw on the Phantom, and, and there is Al Gaff on guitar playing these angular, uh, hits, I, you know, for the, I was really, you know, I, well, anyway, I've listened to that tune many, many times, but, um, I took particular interest in Al's playing today, and, um. How how did you uh, how did you link up with with Duke and 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 Blue Note? Uh, Duke uh, came by the Playboy Club, and he's he asked me if I'd like to do some more work with him. I said, Yeah, sure. I didn't really know exactly. I knew who he was, and but I I didn't know what kind of work he was talking about. And and it was uh, some sessions. There was a bunch of artists. Uh, maybe uh, it's going to be a tough one to think. Maybe Lee Morgan might may have done some things with him and. Uh, uh, I'll, th- I'll think of the names. You know, I just I, I have a uh, I, I'm going to drop a story here because I talked to Mickey Roker and he he said there was a period of time where uh, him and Bob Crenshaw were living together, mm-hmm. and Duke would come over and play. Uh, yeah. it, it, they had a big band, but but because Mickey was trying to learn how to read music, mm-hmm. and so Duke would come over and teach him how to read it, and then they, they the trio would jam together. But it sounds like um, you know that. Did you play in those kind of settings as well once you got to know him, or or was it in this always in the studio? Uh, I I played with him at, at a at a club once or twice, and uh, uh, I, it, it's just it's because I wasn't working with him. I just I just went in to to uh, sit in, and he you know he said he's working. Why not come by? And and I did, and I and uh, you know that that's that's sitting in was. Uh, Kind of thing that you were invited to every once in a while, and uh, I did play with him in there. But it was most of the stuff that I did with him was in the studio. And how did that? At that point, though, you felt proficient. I mean, you had been working. Uh, you know, you had learned the ins and outs of jazz guitar pretty well. I mean, you felt. Uh, oh wait a minute! I got to take take you that. That's ne- I. I never feel like I know the ins and outs of jazz guitar. Go ahead, explain. I. I, I just you know I play the guitar. And I play what feels like it belongs, and it makes me feel good to play it. But um, it, it, it's not true that I know everything about the guitar because I really don't. I just I know how to use what I know, and I know how to how and when to use it. And I think that's one of the reasons that I've been successful. 
Yeah, no, I have I have a tendency to sort of uh, bastardize language. So pull me back in, Al. I mean, I want <laughs> I want you to put this in your in your words. Okay. Um. So uh, you. So really, the 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 session the session dates with Duke, the early seventies. Um. For me, Al was a, a really interesting time, uh, in our history as a country. We had, we obviously had the Vietnam War. We had um, uh, we had a political scandal with Watergate. We had an, an oil embargo going on, and um, but at the same time, amidst all this sort of um, political and uh, and f- uh, you know both foreign and domestic, this mess uh, came about this sort of fusion of uh, not the weather report fusion or or the you know that kind of uh, mid seventies or later seventies fusion, but I'm talking about a fusion of of rock and jazz and also the fusion of acoustic. An electric guitar um, or or electric instrumentation. Uh, it it made it made for a very funky sound, and it made for a really really beautiful sound. And um, I was wondering if you talk a little bit about uh, from from those early seventies uh, years. Um, you know the kind of vibe that that you remember uh, from from that period, and uh, and some of the experiences you had playing on people's people's albums. Uh. Okay, so the the early seventies. Um, let, let me. Um, I need to back up in, in, into uh, about nineteen sixty nine. That Playboy job came to an end, and uh, I got a call to uh, go out on the road with Sammy Davis, and I just I needed a change. Uh, I needed I, I needed a change from 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 the scene that I was in. Uh, that was the recording scene and uh, and and the club thing. It was just you, every once in a while you need to uh, sweep out the closet and move on. So I uh, I I went out on the road with Sammy Davis and I was with him for about a year. And uh, during that year, uh, Carmen McRae was his opening act for about maybe six weeks. And uh, in 1970, uh, I'm, I'm, this is a, it's a, the dates are not exact, you know, but uh, I think it was in 1970, her uh, pianist decided to leave after being with her for, uh, that was Norman Simmons. I think he had been with her about 18 years, if not more. He needed a break, too. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. could, could be. Yeah. All right, so, so uh, uh, when, when, you, when you, were, you are an accompanist with somebody for that long, there, something happens that it has. It's beyond music. It's a, there's a there's a bond. It's, it's some kind of. It's a personal bond. You know, you make if you make friends with somebody for, for twenty years, and all of a sudden that friendship is not there. You can never find somebody to replace that person exactly. So this is what happened uh, with her. She, her pianist had left after all this time, and she could not find another pianist to, to fill that spot. And so one of the one of the guys that she was working with used to sit in with us every once in a while. His name was Nat Pierce, and Nat says, "Well, why don't you call Al Gaffer?" So she says, "You know, she remembered me from the Sammy Davis thing, and she called me, and I flew out to uh, uh, Los Angeles, and we rehearsed for about a week in her house. She had a, she had a job coming up, and 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 the, the rehearsals went well, and everything was right, and so um, I became her musical director and conductor, and." That that was that's that is how is that how is that flown below the radar for this long? I don't I never knew that. Oh okay. Well, that, it, so, it, it probably flew flew so low because uh, <laughs> the work was not there. There was just not enough work. I tried 
I tried living in New York and then uh, flying out wherever she had a job. That didn't work. She was not working enough for me to, to make a living. And when you're in the studios in New York, if, you get caught, if you're out of town, there's 25 guys that, that's, that are looking for, you, for, you, for that one spot, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I couldn't keep working with her and keep the studio thing going. It was just conflicting. I stayed with her for about a year, but there was, I was not making enough, enough money to make a living. And I had uh, just gotten married. And, uh, uh, now you didn't want, you wanted to be, you wanted to have some roots. You know, you didn't want to be trans flying all over the place. Uh, that, you know. No, no, that, no, that's, uh, uh, I got to cut you off again. That's yeah. not exactly true. That was not, not part of, uh, that didn't come into the, into the, uh, into the picture at all. Ma- making music was the whole thing. Being able to survive as a musician was the whole thing. Whether I survived uh, in New York or survived on the road, uh, it didn't matter. I, I needed to survive because I, I needed that for myself. So uh, Carmen was not working enough. I had to finally cut that loose. And I, uh, uh, when we, whenever we used to work in in, uh, uh, in New York, we used to use Mickey Roker. So after uh, I left Carmen, Mickey w- was with Dizzy. Dizzy wanted to try, a, uh, he tried a guitar player out one time, it didn't work out, so Mickey said, why don't you call Al? And there I was, I, came, I, I started with Dizzy. That's from 1971 to 76, I was with uh, Dizzy. So uh, Made some great albums, too. I mean, uh, the ba- Bahaina. Uh, Bahaina, yeah, Bahaina. Yeah, Bahaina, yeah, go ahead. That was a, a very strange album. Uh, there were guys on that album that were not, they shouldn't have been playing on that album. The group was really tight without without any augmenting that group. Well, yeah. the the group in your mind it just was, should have been. Uh, uh, it should it should have been at that time was a was a quintet. Uh, uh, Earl May, Mickey, Mike Longo, me, and Dizzy. And it should have it should have that album should have stayed that way. But Dizzy, you know, Dizzy used to used to try these these things here. Uh, I'll give you an example of what I mean. Uh, one time we went out to do a fest- festival in, I think, Monterey, and he hired another drummer. Now, Mickey Roker is probably one of the best drummers in the world. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need any help. So we had a guy come in, and the guy was in the way. So it, it doesn't be, didn't mean that the guy couldn't play. It means that he was just in the way. We didn't, we, you know, we didn't need it. Everybody was like, Dizzy, why'd you do this? <laughs> no, no, nobody said anything, but everybody, th- you know, thought that, and that's what that what used to happen a lot. Uh, we, we'd go, we'd get ready to do a festival, and somebody would show up, and Dizzy would say, "Come on, play with us," and we didn't need it. Yeah. So anyway, uh, no, Mickey. Mickey told me a story where, uh, you know, it was just like Dizzy also had a hard time really keeping the trumpet in his hands. He wanted to do everything but play the trumpet. <laughs> is that is that is that fair? <laughs> he uh, he uh, was. Yeah, we used to carry those congas around. He had congas that he loved the congas. <laughs> he loved the congas, Al. He, like, he had that. He had that. The congas, and he had a, some stick with some bottle caps on it. That he a rhythm stick that he used to bang on it. Yeah. And <laughs> so he he was not, he was not rhythm uh, deprived. He was always looking to play play some rhythm, and he, you know, uh, he was learning. He was uh, was on the job training for him, but he was he was good, and he, could, and he understood rhythm, and he knew you know he played. It was okay, but yes, he did. He he played a, he played enough trumpet and even if he played uh, two minutes instead of six minutes that you know those two minutes were packed with some heavy duty music so it, so it was worth while when I first joined that group his harmonic concept was so so far different than anybody that I had ever worked with before I, I couldn't even find the notes on 
on the guitar. You know, I just, can you can you actually extrapolate on harmonic concept for my audience? Well, I can I can only explain it musically. I can't yeah, that's it. it. Just do the best other, you can. I like okay, to get these uh, terms out. There are there are notes. Uh, there, there, when I'm when I'm playing, I'm playing one, two, three, four, five, seven, nine, eleven. Those kind of intervals for those who know. Uh, know and Dizzy would play one sharp five, flat five, sharp nine, flat nine, and he would alter the chords. So the, I, you can't you cannot just play one chord and that you got to you got to fix when you're accompanying somebody mm-hmm. you have to change the chord to fit what the guy is playing you can't just play a chord and say that's I'm the accompanist right. that's not accompanying that's just playing chords and anybody can do that so when he was playing the first the first night i i said gee where are these notes and and until so i found where they were and then i understood what he was i didn't I'm, i can't say that i I understood a lot about where he was going with the things, and I can anticipate where he was going. And that's the job of an accompanist. You need to you need to listen, and you need to anticipate. And uh, uh, so, oh, Mike was in the group for about a year with the with the quintet, and then Mike left, and we just left it as a quartet. And the the music uh, seemed like it took a, a step up because we, we you know we everybody knew knew what was going on, and it was it was nice, yeah. But Dizzy played it. He played in. I'm I'm not sure I agree with Mickey saying that he had trouble putting the trumpet in his hand. He, he did play the congas a lot, but he played the congas when I was soloing, and and he played the trumpet when he was soloing. So it's. Uh, no, I I think uh, I think it was just that his he his mind was literally on nine different things at one time, and he, <laughs> you know he he was able to he was able to juggle them all, but occasionally you know he got a little bit uh, carried away. What were the set this scene like after a show? Um, when it was just the the real deal guys, you know, it was you, uh, Earl Ray, um, Earl May, Earl May, um, Mickey, Mike, Dizzy. Um, would you guys would you guys like grab a meal? Like, what? How would you? What would you do in in the downtime after a gig? After a really good gig? Well. Uh, or, or would you go your separate ways? Would you go back to your wife? I don't know. I mean, you know, you know, that's to me, it's like uh, part of it's part of it's. You got to put it in the time, you know. Yeah, my uh, Mike and uh, uh, Mickey and Dizzy loved to play poker, so there was always a poker game going on oh, with uh, somebody, Milk Jackson or or somebody. There'd always be a poker game going, on. and uh, I would kind of go my own my own way because uh, I, I was not into playing cards after a job and stuff like that. So, and Earl was the same way. He would Earl and I had played a lot of music together before, and we kind of went our own separate ways there. I mean, we would play every once. We'd play some poker every once in a while, or we'd play pinochle on the, on a, a plane that we we always seemed to be flying almost every ten days somewhere. And uh, you guys did travel a lot. You know, we were we, with the quartet. We were on the road for about a little over two hundred days a year, plus another maybe six or seven weeks of work in New York. So we were on on the road a lot. It was that's that's really true. But we would never stay out for long. You know, we'd go out for. Uh, Eight days or so, and come back for one or two days, and then go back out again. The only time we'd we'd stay out for any length would be to when we went to Europe, and that that would sometimes be six, uh, six, seven weeks sometimes. Talking with Al Gaffa, Al, in our remaining moments here, I wanted to touch on um, an album that uh, really I, I listened to the other day, and it just it's it's sprightly and it's it's buoyant and uh, it's funky too. I, I think it's it doesn't get enough credit for being a, a, a good good album. Uh, is uh, Leblon Beach, which is uh, was was that your first album as a uh, as a leader? Yeah, it was. A, it, it definitely was my first album. Um, um, 
that came about uh, from Dizzy. Dizzy uh, uh, told Norman uh, Grants, he said, Norman, why don't you, uh, you know, uh, record Al? And uh, we had been playing a bunch of my compositions in in uh, in Dizzy's group. And uh, Norman Norman called me, and I decided, yeah, yeah, I'd love to do it, sure. And how did you put? How did you did 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 you have a lot of say in in who you wanted to? Because there's there's a lot of guys. There's some there's a really cool percussionist on that album that I've never heard of before. Kenny Barron, of course, played piano. But mm-hmm. did you have a lot of a lot of uh, like if you could cut your own album, you could bring in the people you wanted? Yeah, yeah. I, I those are. I'm the guy that called everybody on that on that uh, in that situation. Yeah, uh, Kenny, I, I had worked with him a few times. He's he's I just love playing with him. He's uh, he's a terrific person and a terrific player. And uh, let's see, that was Ben Brown was the bass player with, with Dizzy at the time. The, that uh, the percussionist was As Dean Weston. That's Randy Weston's wow. kid or something like that. Oh wow! And that, that they just you wanted an added percussive instrument. Yeah, yeah. So when you when you look back at at at, at your 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 body and now, uh, you know, I what I'd like to do is actually, um, you know, that we have a few minutes, just a couple minutes left in in the uh, the regular pro program, but I'd like to come back and do a, an additional rollover for maybe another uh, five to ten minutes if that's possible. Mm-hmm. Is that okay? Sure. All right. So um, we've been talking with Al Gaffa. Uh, this is a special edition of the Jake Feinberg Show that will. Um, ultimately be um, uh, going on the road uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, we're going to be going back to New- going back to Boston and doing some more chronicling of uh, of, of uh, musicians at the New England Conservatory, and then we'll be headed to New York, uh, where I plan on sitting down with uh, with Bagels uh, with Gil Goldstein and uh, getting a chance to hang out with with Mike Longo as well um, in this pursuit of um, interviewing all my all my heroes in, in music. Um, Al, let me ask you uh, real quickly. Uh, tell tell in the last couple, couple minutes of our session here, um, what do you do musically these days? Are you writing? Are you playing? What are you doing now? Well, uh, the music business uh, has changed a lot uh, for me. Um, should we hold this uh, question until the? Should we hold this until we come back? Is this? I don't want to cut you off, and I, I feel like you're going to go on. You're going to have. Yes, yeah, I'm definitely going to go on. Okay, that's good. I want I want to get your opinion here. Um, but um. Everything, um, everything is good. And uh, and Al, hang tight. We're going to go to a we'll cut we'll we'll go to the break here, and uh, we'll come back in in just a minute. Okay. Terrific. Right. Thanks a lot. Yep. Yeah. 